I had someone say the funniest thing to me, Adam, the other day. They said I was like the love child of two fictitious people, one real person. Olivia Pope from Scandal, Harvey Specter from the show with the princess. What's that show? Suits. And then mediator president Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That is, that's a great way to describe me. I am Olivia, Harvey, and Jimmy. I'm a fixer. You're a fixer. <laughs> but a fixer. not a fixer where there's a dead body. In or a, or lo- no. The <laughs> Molly Peterman really is the love child of Olivia Pope, Harvey Specter, and President Jimmy Carter. And how do I know that? Because I had no idea who Olivia Pope and Harvey Specter are, but I Googled them, and then I realized why she said that. (laughs) Olivia Pope is this total badass African-American woman lawyer who solves huge crises, just like Damali does. Harvey Specter is a cutthroat corporate lawyer, and I would not describe Damali as cutthroat, but you can tell that when she's defending her clients, she would definitely be tough. And then, obviously, we do all know who Jimmy Carter is. The point is, she's impressive. And today, she runs her own business. I actually have two companies. One company is Damali Law, LLC. And at Damali Law, it's primarily a a law firm. And then I also own Breakthrough ADR, LLC. ADR stands for Alternative Dispute Resolution. And we focus on mediations and trainings. All right. I want to win this interview. I want to destroy (laughs) you in this interview. I want to... Um, that's always my joke with my wife when we have a fight. I'm going to win this marriage. Only one and, person uh, can. What's the score so far? I just negative. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm Adam Davidson, and this is The Passion Economy, a show where we talk to regular people who have figured out how to thrive in a challenging economy. We tackle each story in three parts. First, we get the background. What is the weird combination of things that made this person uniquely them. Second, we study their business and understand how they took their special characteristics and turned it into an actual business that makes money. And then third, we pick their story apart for lessons that we can use in our own lives, and our own businesses. So, part one, Damali's life before she became a lawyer. And it is a particularly rich life with a lot of very varied experiences. And we're going to spend a bit of time understanding all the things that made Damali her. Because that is something that is so important in the passion economy. For a lot of jobs in the previous economy, the 20th century scale economy, what you wanted to do was kind of tamp down the things that made you you so that you could fit a predefined job. Not anymore. In the passion economy, you want to highlight and really celebrate the things that are weird about you, that are unusual. And Damali has a whole bunch of different aspects of who she is that come together into her work today. And like almost everyone we interview on this show, she now has a job that literally only she could do. It is hard to imagine any other person who could have exactly the job she has. Anyhow, let's get to her background. I'm from Washington, D.C. And some people say Washington, D.C. when they mean Bethesda or Arlington. I'm from Northwest Washington, D.C. And my understanding is you grew up in a home where there might have been a lot of mediation needed. (laughs) You had a lot of siblings. Yes, yes, I'm the oldest of seven. 
Wow. I have one sister and five brothers. Her dad was a cop for 29 years. By the way, he retired after 27 years. I threw him an amazing retirement party, and then he went back for another two years. That's how much he loved being a police officer. Her mom was a homemaker. She's uh, stayed at home with us, actually, and kind of put off her passions until we were older. So then she you know, pursued culinary school, accounting leasing certification, just different things, pursuing different passions, trying to, I guess, figure out what she liked the most after spending so much time at home with us. And as Damali put it, my mom is very relaxed and loving and nurturing. And my dad was more like, you say, I love you. He say, ditto, right? Ditto. <laughs> ditto. <laughs> <More> romantic. <laughs> yeah. And so I feel like I learned to be, I am a good balance of both of them. Gotcha. My dad's always early. My mom's always late. She's not going to hear this, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm always like right on time because I'm a perfect balance of both of them. I love that balance between someone like her mom, someone who just takes on all sorts of different things and doesn't see a contradiction in studying how to cook and studying how to do accounting and trying lots and lots of experiments, but also being someone like her dad, someone who just gives their all to whatever it is they're doing. That combination of full commitment and wild flexibility, that has made Damali who she is, and it's a really good model for a lot of us. Damali had one clear plan for herself from a very young age. I always wanted to go to law school. I knew that I would be an advocate in some way as a child. If my brother wanted to do something, I would usually try to convince my parents that it was okay for him to do it. And I would kind of mediate between like my parents and like my siblings or between my siblings when there was a disagreement. When I was a child, I didn't know the word mediator. I just knew that lawyers like had clients and they had people that they represented and helped. So that's really why I wanted to go into law. She was also open to veering from her lifelong plan when she found something that intrigued her. Because it turns out Damali had a knack for languages. In junior high school, I took three years of Russian during the Cold War. I took Spanish after taking three years of Russian, Portuguese and Danish, Japanese, two full programs of Mandarin. And that passion for languages led her down some unexpected paths. She thought she'd go to law school after college, but she decided to take a summer language program at the Monterey Institute in California. And while I was there, I kind of fell in love with California, and the school had really amazing programs. And so I applied for their master's program, and I was accepted to the master's program. And so that was kind of a very fortunate detour on the path to law school. While she was there... A professor changed her life. He introduced me to a book called Herding Cats. I think it was like as thick as, I was going, wow, I was going to date myself and say three encyclopedias. <laughs> <laughs> or you can um, say a phone book. A phone book, uh, also dating data. myself, yeah. right? But it was pretty thick. And in it were different stories of different conflicts that were mediated from like Jimmy Carter mediating to like conflicts taking place in Colombia with the FARC, et cetera, and how they were addressed throughout the world. And I was like, I could do that. That's amazing. Like I was born for that. So she got a degree in international policy studies with a special certificate in conflict resolution. I had no idea there was such a thing. And in the interest of speeding this story along, a montage of all the things Damali did that maybe did not seem at the time like the right choice for someone who knows they want to end up as a lawyer. But each of these things celebrated and fueled her unique talents and interests. 
then I went to The Hague. I found a great opportunity at the Sarah Peaky Conservation Learning Center in Costa Rica. I started setting up micro enterprises for women. So I started teaching jiu-jitsu. We had a scholarship program that I ran. I worked in Europe and in New York and D.C. with high school students from all over the world, teaching them international negotiations and economics. And then I went to law school. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, where'd <laughs> you go to law school? law school? Howard University School of Law. Howard University is known for creating social engineers, people who want to give back. You know, at the time that I graduated from law school, it was a few months before Lehman filed, right? And filed so, for bankruptcy. For bankruptcy. And the law firm that I went to filed Lehman's bankruptcy. Oh, really? And so talk about like learning a lot on the job as and the so, world is changing. So you went, which law firm? Wild Gottschall and Mangies. I devoted all of the end of 2008 into 2009 covering the financial crisis. And I can tell you that when one of the top firms in the country put someone like Damali on one of the hardest corporate cases in history, it should give you an idea of what a superstar she is. I started at WOW as a private equity mergers and acquisitions attorney. But when I started, during our orientation, this was going on, there were no companies really being bought. And so a lot of us who were in what we called the Pima Group, private equity M&A, were somehow doing small things related to the Lehman restructuring, followed by other companies restructurings, AIG and others, until the economy kind of right-sided itself again. So before law school and in law school, you're talking about global conflict resolution. Yes. You're talking about social engineering. Yes. I have to say, private equity mergers and acquisition feels like a, such a different world. I mean, that's a world of helping really, really rich people get really, really richer. And it just seems like a universe away from what your passion and dreams were. Oh, that's a great way to see that. So I'll say two things about that. One, rich people have problems too. <laughs> <laughs> they have conflicts too. And having someone like me helping people as they transition through various things, like maybe they were acquired by a bigger company and now they're losing their position. There's a very human side to private equity and M&A. And I was the right person to be there at that time. So that's the first thing that I'll say. The second thing that I'll say is I completely agree with you, which is why I'm no longer in that space <laughs> okay, gotcha. because that wasn't the true culmination of bringing my skill set together. I will say that Part of the reason that I think I was very successful at Wild, I have a lot of great relationships and mentors and happy clients, was because I brought sort of my background into the position. Wild did a really great job of finding good cultural fits and also kind of seeing that if you were thriving in a certain area, for example, being able to communicate with people who are could be challenging or, have, or being able to have a difficult conversation, which are things we learn as mediators, to kind of put you in that place to kind of help. So I was able to use some of my skills, but not enough to the extent that I do today. Yeah. So you don't look back on that as like a deviation oh, from the absolutely path not. that was... Absolutely not. I think the narrative that I tell people today is all of those things, all those experiences, and I, I suspect you would share the sentiment, had to happen to get me to this place where timing and opportunity aligned for me to really live my passion the way that I want to live my right. passion. Eventually, Damali leaves Weil and takes a job at Deloitte as assistant general counsel. Again, superstar-level job, and she really had fun. There was enough variety that I really enjoyed it. At the same time, we're starting to approach what really was a page-turner or a life-altering move in my book was 
the U.S. elections in 2016. After the break, how the election of Donald Trump spurred Damali to strike out on her own. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. I want to mention two things that really stand out about Damali here. First of all, I know a fair number of lawyers in New York City. When you go from a promising career at Weill, one of the top firms, to a really promising career at Deloitte, one of the top global firms, you don't just quit to start your own firm. You are on a path to making a huge fortune as a senior lawyer. Number two, Damali will tell us that the election in November 2016 was so dramatic in her life that it made her restructure her entire life. Yet, she is not going to tell us ever, and I tried, how she feels about President Trump. And that tells you a lot about Damali. She is all about conflict resolution, stopping conflicts, resolving conflicts. And she knows that whoever she's talking to, bringing up the name Trump and expressing a view, is highly likely to cause conflict. And that is not what she's about. She did tell me that what spurred this change in her was this shift in our culture overall, a shift that was clearly sparked by the 2016 election. I felt like Especially in New York City, I felt like the mood in the air had changed. I felt like throughout the campaign, a lot of things that I think Americans have tried to ignore or tried to avoid kind of came back to life. And I remember thinking, Adam, the world is going to need a lot of conflict resolvers now. And literally, I thought those words... And then I couldn't stop thinking that. Like every day I woke up and I thought that. And I looked at my children and I thought that. And I sat in my office and I thought that. So what was I doing with all these skills and <laughs> and not using them for the greater good? For the greater good. Yeah. 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 And that's a social engineer in me coming out. Right. <laughs> she was dormant for a bit. If you loved your job at Weiler, Deloitte, oh, more power to you. But it just, I think it would feel like a bit of a bummer if you didn't use some of these I wasn't other tools. using, you know, if we are three-dimensional, if we are, let's say we have 100% of ourselves. So I felt like in each of those jobs, I was giving my all. I was doing my best and I was doing very well. I wasn't using 100% of all of the, let's call them passions or skills that I had because there wasn't a space to use all of that. And so what I did with my own companies, especially the first one, was to create a space to use all of my skills. To create a job because you yes. nobody was like, hey, you know what we want? We need an assistant general counsel for everything Damali loves doing. Yes. And it's great at. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how does that happen? You have this really good job. It's yeah. I don't want to embarrass you. I'm assuming we're really good salary and it's yes. the next levels are even more. Yes. Like with a lot of support internally, like it was close. I could walk there from my apartment. Like it was great. It was great. <laughs> it was great. So what do you do? Like, how do you start thinking about your passions and what you're doing? What action do you take? Yeah. And so, I mean, it's funny. I actually took out a legal pad and I wrote down everything that where were I knew you how to do. Well, <laughs> it started at lunchtime at work. I should have gone out for lunch and I didn't. I was, again, so ensconced, if you will, with this idea of conflict resolvers being needed immediately. And I felt like a superhero. I felt like, you know, like Superman has that sort of, you know, she takes off his shirt and there's the S. I felt like I had these skills that were needed and no one knew about them. Not that, Again, I'd used them for work, but kind of where they fit in. And so I took out a legal pad. I started at work. I was sitting in my office and I remember like writing on my legal pad, which probably looked like legal work. And I wrote all the things I knew how to do. And it started off, I remember saying, I'm writing like, speaks different languages, travels, can negotiate X, Y, and Z. It started off like that, but then it was like this amazing brainstorming session where everything I wrote, I thought of something else. And I think it went on. It was one of those 11 by 14 legal pads. And so I went on and I remember it was like columns of work. And also I have the worst handwriting, so I couldn't even decipher everything, but I I just kept going on and kept going on. And I think I had about three pages. I still have this somewhere. I should look in one of my banker's boxes from when I backed up my office there. And then I wrote everything down and then I started to, so I had this massive list of what I knew how to do. And some of the options had subcategories. That's how I think. (laughs) Subparagraph G. Yeah, subparagraph G was there. And then I started to circle what I love to do. And as I started circling what I love to do, what I saw emerge was kind of three professions, if you will. There was the educator in me. There was the mediator in me, which, you know, clearly started back when I was a child. My first sibling was born when I was three. And so I feel like I've had budding skills from <laughs> from the age of three onward. And then, of course, there was the lawyer. Being that I lived in New York for so many years, most people only knew me as Damali the lawyer. And so when I sat there and I, I actually wrote attorney, mediator, educator, and I was like, I like that. I'm going to put it on the card. So I did. You did. You <laughs> ordered did. a card. I did. I did. Like I, on, uh, I didn't even have a name yet for my company, but I was like, it's going to say attorney, mediator, and educator. And yeah, that's what I did. Wow. Well, I want to zero in on this because this is such a passion economy moment. This is like, I want listeners to think about their Damali moment when mm. they're like, because I think so many people are in exactly the boat you were in on that day. It's not that you're, you know, an accountant who hates accounting and your dream is to be a baker and mm. you have to just fully leave one world and go to another world. I think that does happen. Yeah. But more often it's you have a job and a life that's maybe it's 68% or 73% satisfying. Maybe it's scratching a lot of your itches, but it's not scratching all of them. And that's, for some people, that's okay. And for some people, that's always unbearable. But I think for a lot of people, it takes some external shock to shake you up. And it sounds like you were probably in that 68 to 73%. Like, if you stayed doing that, you would not be a miserable person hating every day. But there was some soul-satisfying something that was not 
being spoken to and being revealed to the world. And so I think I'm going to call it the Damali moment when you actually <laughs> do that list. So you said you started at lunch. Was it a one-time thing? Did it take you weeks, hours? No, the elections were, what, November 4th we voted. I gave notice right after Thanksgiving. Wow. And um, I, I gave three weeks notice. And my last day, I think, was December 16th. Wow. So this was quick. It was relatively quick because that's how I operate to you. Like once I make a decision, I go for it. I just felt like now it was the right time. Wow. Okay. So mediator, educator, attorney. Yeah. And what did you like go online to Vistaprint or something and order (laughs) some business cards? Is that? No. So the first thing I did was I sent probably like a hundred text messages to people that I respected and trusted with different names. And I asked them, like, what name do you like? And resoundingly, except for one person who I really trust and admire, everyone thought it should be Damali Law. So, I mean, this is a major life change, right? It means you're dramatically shrinking the income coming into the home. Obviously, you're excited. How scared were you when you made this choice? I'm on a scale of 1 to 10, probably... I would probably say if 10 is, like, super, super scared... And one is like, eh, probably four. Five. Oh, you weren't that scared. No, because I really thought that timing and opportunity had aligned. Everything had come together. Like I, I felt like everything that I needed. I met someone at a meeting. We really hit it off. She had her own law firm for trusts and estates. And she was amazing. Her name is Danny Nodelman. And she said, oh, would well, you want to start a firm? I can tell you everything you need, you know, from professional liability insurance to if you want to have an office space. Like she literally came and met with me for an hour and told me everything I needed and sent it to me in an email. And so like she made it easy for me to start. So I left Deloitte on December 16th. And literally, it moved into the office January 11th. I filed all my paperwork on February 24th. I signed my first client February 28th, and it's been nonstop ever since. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, everything kind of happened in a way that really supported that the timing was right for me to do it. Yeah. And I do want to say, I mean, we like this show to be as accessible and inspirational for people as possible. And so much of your story, I think, applies to almost anyone. But I do think you had certain advantages that not everyone has. You had a, a husband who I'm guessing had a reasonable income. You had, you had had such an income that I assume there were some savings. And just being a lawyer with a kind of blue chip pedigree, which is not to say your story isn't inspirational and one that we can learn a lot from. I love the Damali moment, but it's worth acknowledging. Let me ask you, what would you say to someone who's, let's say, in a similar position in that they're in a job, it's a pretty good job, but... They listen to the show, they do the Damali moment, they write down what they know how to do, they circle what they love, and then they're like, yes, I want to do this. But maybe they're a single parent, or they don't have any money in the bank, or they're in a field where it's just going to take longer. What I don't know, what thoughts do you have? Two words, resource map. Resource map. What's resource that? map, Adam. So a resource map, and I have to give credit to this. I recently graduated from the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, which partnered with the Tory Burch Foundation. And in that sort of three-month program, I learned a lot of amazing things that you would learn, say, in business school. And one of the things that I learned is a resource map, which is something that I think I've been doing and not having a name for throughout my career. And a resource map is writing down what you want. 
So say you write down three goals and say you want to have a podcast. Then the next column is, who do you know that can help you with this? And what's amazing about that exercise is you start to remember things that you may have kind of, you have somewhere in the back of your brain that you haven't thought about. And so, you know, you may know a friend who's a producer on a TV show, or you may know someone who works in radio, or you may know someone who was a guest on a podcast. And then the next column is an action item. Call Adam, text Peggy, send a message to or visit this person to talk about starting a podcast. And so... The point of the resource map is no one has everything. While I agree that there are some advantages, I I smiled when you said that because, you know, I think that everyone has something, right? Or everyone everyone knows someone that has something. (laughs) Let's put it that way. And so what I love about the resource map is you don't have to have everything. You don't have to have all the answers. But I'll bet you if you start writing down and don't edit it. That's the other tip I'll give is don't edit it. When your brain is in that creative brain dump, brainstorming moment, just write. Keep writing because you'd be surprised at what other thoughts are triggered as you're writing. And then keep filling it out. And you could do that with almost anything. That's it. Yes. And I agree. And there's almost every part of the U.S. and much of Europe and parts of the rest of the world, there's local groups that support entrepreneurs, incubators. There's people who really take joy in helping others move forward. And a good idea will eventually get the funding it needs. And when you met the woman who walked you through, that is a major transition that I'm in the middle of going through where I have a lot of podcasting experience, but I've never started my own podcasting company. And I had to learn about payroll Mm. and health insurance and which microphones to buy and how many cables I need to buy and all these and and insurance and uh, like regular liability insurance, all of that kind of stuff. So if you were a lawyer at a law firm that already existed and a company that already existed, what do you have to do? That sounds like a lot. Yeah. And so it's a great question because I knew how to practice law, right? So the first company that I started was a law firm, but then I didn't know how to run a business. And so she gave me all that information. And so, I mean, one, you have to have a business entity, right? So you have to figure out what organizational form you want to take. So LLC or a corporation or some other business entity. And then you have to figure out things um, to your point. If you're going to hire people, so having payroll systems in place, also a process for hiring people, right? And so there are a lot of things like that that I had to learn, but also to realize that there are people that provide those services. So similar to the fact that I'm good at what I do and I should be doing this, there are people who are great at those things and that I should find them and then delegate to them some of those responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. I've been right? doing that like crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hired an HR consultant because a lot of people applied and I have a, an accountant to handle the accounting. and Very important person yeah. to have on your team. Yeah. I think everyone needs a lawyer and an accountant, just yeah. putting it out there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How do you, like, How do you figure out who you want to be your customer and how you communicate who you are to your customer, if that makes sense? Because it sounds to me like the last thing you wanted was just, we're a general purpose law firm, we'll do whatever you want. That's right. And so what I've noticed over the course of my career is that sometimes when lawyers set up their, we call it hanging our own shingle. They hang their own shingle. They open their law practice for the reasons you articulated. Maybe they have savings, but they don't want to tap into them. Or maybe they're kind of more financially or fiscally conservative with respect to like, you know, starting the company. They may do what 
we refer to in my industry as door law, meaning door it, law. Yeah. Door law is doing anything that comes in the door. So maybe you're doing some immigration, maybe you're doing some real estate and you are a divorce, a di- whatever. divorce whatever. And you may be a banking lawyer. Right. And so I am fortunate that I never had to do door law and I could be very particular about who I said yes to. And I think Being that I am the brand and I'm creating the brand and also brand recognition, I'm looking for this exceptional, upstanding clients. And I don't like to play games. I don't have a lot of free time. I have a family. And so I am always, not only my children, but as you know, my six siblings and my parents and everyone else in my family. And so it's really important to me that my time is spent wisely. And so I have a consultation call with every client. And during that call, I can get a good sense of if we are a good fit for each other. People often choose me, one, if they, everyone who comes to me has been referred to me. I don't do any marketing for my law firm. And they choose me after either talking to me or visiting my website. And it's very clear, it's transparent, it's on my website that I am all about preserving relationships. If you are trying to have a business divorce or transition from your role, the last thing you need on top of that is an adversarial person who is going to like pound the pavement. Yeah, it's great to be an advocate, but maybe that's not the tenor or the pace or the sentiment that you want. And so I think that's something that really separates me in a saturated market from some people. And does that mean you say no to people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I definitely say no. I actually had someone that I had to say no to recently. And the person who referred that person to me called me, also a lawyer, and wanted to know why I said no. And my answer was, do you say yes to every client that you interview? Even though you're at a big firm, does it make it any different for me if I don't think they're a fit for my firm? And and what about the new company? I'm very excited about my new company. And so my new company, it's almost, so Damali Law focuses on, as the name implies, legal matters, but there is always a mediation and training component. And what Breakthrough ADR does is call it the separation of the legal from the non-legal. And so with Breakthrough, I'm really focusing on mediations, training workshops, helping groups have productive conversations, so facilitating conversations, and building a tech component because, unfortunately, Adam, it can be everywhere at all times. And so I'd like to build out online courses, a blog, book, and a workbook. And so I'm working on these things that will hopefully outlive me. Think of it as productizing my services. And just help me understand, who's the client for that? Great. So a lot of the clients are companies. Some could be individuals. So for example, for mediation, sometimes HR surprisingly, it's not seen as neutral because clearly HR works for the company. And so if you're having an issue that HR cannot help you with, if you have an HR department, then HR may send individuals to me to help mediate the situation. Or I've had companies who want training in the art of negotiation or mediation techniques or how to have a difficult conversation. I'm also a minority-owned, women-owned business that's certified in New York City and New York State, which I'm very proud of. Yeah. And uh, so first, let's talk from passion terms. So if you were in the like around 70% of the fullness of you being satisfied by your work, where are you now? 92%. 92%? Easily. Easily? That's awesome. Can we get that higher? We can get it higher. I think breakthrough will get me there. Yeah. I think being able to spread sort of this idea that 
anyone can be a conflict resolver, no matter their background, age, profession, that everyone has the ability to be a conflict resolver. If I can spread that, then that is my legacy. That's what I want to leave. I want to teach people how to fish. So I love being called in. As long as there's conflict, which there will always be, I will always have a job. Right. <laughs> and so I'm not worried about people saying, oh, if you teach people how to resolve their own conflicts, they won't call you. People will always call me. Damali has done a brilliant thing. She's found a problem that will always need solving. Problems. And that's just one of the key lessons we can learn from her. More after the break. All right, let's learn from Damali's life and see what lessons we can apply to our own. And Damali really helped us out because she gave us these really specific concrete actions that each of us can take, that you can take, that will point you in the right direction. I love the Damali method. I feel like we should all be doing this at least once a year, if not more often. Take a big legal pad or a computer or a whiteboard or whatever, write down all the things you do, all the skills you have, as specific or general, as broad or narrow, and then circle the ones that you really love, that really bring you satisfaction. And then look at that combination and start exploring, how can I monetize that? Who is an audience out there that is willing to pay me money to do that particular mix of things? Number two, once you have a sense of the direction you want to go, I love this idea of resource mapping. Writing down what resources do you have. Now, for some of us, that might mean we have lots of money and we have access to even more money. For a lot of us, that's not the case. But we do know someone or we know someone who knows someone or we know someone who might know someone who might know someone. Uh, We have resources in our community. There's community colleges. There's entrepreneurship groups. There's always the Small Business Administration. And thinking through those resources, researching those resources is a really productive process for two reasons. One is it actually gets you resources you need. But the other thing is it helps you understand that whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, there's a lot more support out there for you than you might realize at first. All of those are specific and crucial steps that I really think apply to anybody trying to embrace the passion economy. But beyond that, Damali's backstory is something we can learn from. So you you sort of had this weird, in the best way, bunch of kind of random experiences, but not really random. You were you were searching for something in your 20s and even in your teens and earlier that was somewhere around conflict resolution, being an advocate. But it sounds like what was really important to you was not just happening to be an empathetic person, but actually have skills and training and and be part of a tradition. I mean, those were all very important. And then you followed the direction our society pushes people who are interested in that space. You know, that's the slot in our culture. You want to resolve conflict, become a lawyer. You don't want to fight a lot. Okay, don't be a litigator, but be a corporate lawyer. And then It wasn't a crisis. It wasn't like you were miserable every day was terrible, but you just realized this isn't enough. And so you carefully, thoughtfully thought, well, what would make it enough? I feel like that's the passion economy journey. That's what we want everybody who wants to to do. Does that sound right? That's spot on. (laughs) That's spot on. 
And do you think everyone can do that? Do I think everyone can pursue their passions? I think everyone has the ability to pursue their passions. What I mean by that is passions do not all have to be grandiose, right? right. It could be smaller passions. I want to write a book or I want to help send a child to school in a different country, or I want to, you know, there are other ways, I think. Or I like baking. Or I I like baking, or I like running, or, I mean, I think everyone has the ability to pursue their passions. I'll tell you for my first company, my revenues for last year were just shy of what I was making when I left Deloitte. Oh, really? Yeah, two years in. Wow. Which probably would not have been a reasonable expectation. No, no. It's virtually, for a non-tech company, virtually unheard of. And I think that going back to your last question, it's possible that people may not know what their passions are. And so to use your phrase of just maybe having a Damali moment and writing down what they enjoy and then figuring out how to parlay that into if they want it to be something that they can monetize or how to at least find a way to do it. Yeah. Because, I mean, in your case, and that, I think that's a key thing, because I one thing I imagine is some people, when they hear the passion economy, follow your passion, might say, well, I don't know what my passion is. Mm-hmm. but. I would argue maybe in your childhood into your 20s, you had a tendency towards conflict resolution, but it was more like you had your eyes open and as you learned, you were like, oh, okay, that's the kind of thing. Well, if I learn a little more, oh, wait, that I'm developing a richer and richer sense of what this thing is. Yeah. And that was crucial, the listening, the thinking, not just being around influential people, but opening your heart and your mind to those people and letting them be mentors, even if they <laughs> don't know you. And yeah. that's a big lifetime process. Can I also say too, because in the field of conflict resolution, there weren't a lot of people who look like me. And so one of the things that you I mean think- African-American. Younger, younger um, women, African, any physical diversity. And even today when I attend conferences in our industry, I'm still, you know, Different. People remember me. (laughs) And so one of the things that I want to make sure that I say, because you asked about people pursuing their passion, if there's not a space for you, make a space. If there's not a seat at the table, just either pull a seat up or make a new table. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 